A few weeks ago, our family decided to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy again. It had been ages since we'd seen it, and we thought we would watch it, and it holds up. It was such, such a good time. And uh, interestingly, it's, I didn't realize this, that the director, Peter Jackson, he actually makes a cameo in all three um, of, those, uh, of those movies. Um, in The Fellowship of the Ring, he's, the, he's a man eating a carrot in the village of Bree. And then in The Two Towers, uh, he's a soldier who uh, throws a spear um, at Helm's Deep. And then in the last movie, The uh, Return of the King, um, he's a sailor on a ship that's sort of kind of coming in to invade and uh, Legolas fires a warning shot from his bow and uh, Peter Jackson catches it in his chest. And uh, so he, he actually writes himself in as the director. Um, C.S. Lewis, the uh, author and apologist, once said that the way that God relates to us as creation, as the creator, is like a playwright who writes himself into the narrative so that he can interact with his creation. And um, when we look out at this world that we live in, the fingerprints of God are everywhere. He has written the clues of his existence both into the fabric of nature and he's woven uh, the clues of his existence into our into our own hearts. Uh, you can look out into nature and you will find continually, repeatedly, everywhere you look, mind-boggling precision and intention and design. The fingerprints of God are everywhere. And psychologically, we as humans crave a sense of meaning and love, purpose. Those things top um, uh, the, the deepest longings of, of the human heart. And there is something deep and innate uh, within all of us um, that wants to live with a real sense of, of purpose. And this, of course, comes uh, from our, our creator who the scriptures tell us has put eternity in our hearts. And so there is this knowledge of God, the sense of God, the sense of the divine. Even if we suppress that knowledge, you know, it's there. And um, our God has not only given us these clues to his existence in nature and in our own psychology, but he has written uh, himself irreversibly into human history. That in a little town called Bethlehem around 4 BC, uh, our God, the creator, came uh, to interact with us as creation as he came in Jesus Christ. And this is our text for this morning, Luke chapter 2. We're going to read this birth narrative of Jesus Christ, the first 18 verses. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so they all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And now it was when they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel 
a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom his favor rests. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. This is God's word. Now, if you are new to uh, Christian faith and exploring Christian faith, we've been over the Advent season looking at some of the strong themes at Christmas that are, uh, for Christians, not cliche words like love and hope and joy. And today we're going to look at this word peace, this announcement of peace. But as we've been looking at these things, we see uh, just how our God has come. He is not a God that just remains at a distance. Uh, our God is transcendent, but he's also eminent. He is with us. And so God, here in this text, we see that he writes himself into human history, uh, into his own work. And you know, that's not normal. Christmas is not normal. Nothing about Christmas is normal. One of the challenges of the jingly jangly nature of the season is that it sort of makes everything normal. Shopping is normal. Half off sales are normal. Ho, ho, hold the payments is normal. Um, <clears throat> it's all normal. And so one more trip to the mall, one more click on Amazon and having something delivered to your door is all normal. And so Christmas can sort of the familiarity of it become normalized. Now, don't worry. I love peppermint mochas just as much as you do. This is not going to be a very Scroogey Sunday. All of these sort of cultural celebrations that have nothing to do with the birth of Christ are still fun and enjoyable. But what they do is they normalize Christmas. And these texts are given to sort of shock us to say, okay, the God of all creation has come and wrote himself into human history. And um, so in that, we want to look at this and recognize um, Christmas is not normal. When God comes and invades our space, and by coming, he announces that it's actually all his space, that warrants an eyebrow raise. That warrants pause for us to consider the implications of all of this. You know, in Christian faith, uh, our faith is not just one of many theological or spiritual claims. It's a historical claim. Our Christian faith is saying, you know, we believe that, you know, under Caesar Augustus, who was born Gaius Octavius and was given the title Caesar in 27 BC in human history, around 4 to 6 BC in a little town named Bethlehem. Christ, Jesus Christ, was born. And at 33 AD on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ was crucified. And three days later, the tomb was empty and all of Roman history and all of world history records that. And as Christians, we, the hope that we have, the hope that we enjoy, that we celebrate at Christmas, is grounded in reality as God has come to give us his peace. And this announcement of this newborn king uh, is confronting and liberating and life-changing all at the same time. It's confronting because if there's a king, then there's a kingdom. And if that king has a kingdom, then that means that his rule and his reign, his definition of what is good and right and true 
transcends all of our definitions of what is good and right and true. And if there is a king, then we ought to bend our knee to that king. So that's confronting. But it's also liberating because our king did not come that first Christmas day to bring judgment on us who are not walking in his ways, keeping his law of love perfectly, perpetually, personally. He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear our judgment. So not only is this announcement of, of, the, of Christ's birth confronting, but it's also liberating. And it's life-changing, of course, because the arrival of God in human flesh means that there's more than this temporal. It means that there is an eternal. And for us fragile humans who uh, can have the whole world come grinding to a halt when a few microbes go in the wrong direction, for those of us who are fragile and wanting to live longer and be stronger and find ways to be younger and defy everything it means to get older, the news of eternity is good news. The news that, that, uh, that uh, there is more than this short life, but that there will be a renewal of this life, this is good news. And so when you come to verse 4, it says that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. And this is very fitting because Jesus even calls himself the bread of life. In the same way that bread nourishes your body, the good news of Jesus Christ nourishes our very souls and sustains our very souls. When you come to verse 7, there's that very familiar passage that says there was no room for Joseph and Mary in the inn. And so what does, this, what does this teach us, the significance of all of this? You know, I've watched a lot of Christian um, plays, nativity plays, growing up in the church. And uh, whenever the nativity uh, is depicted by children, it's always amazing. And whenever the nativity is depicted by adults, it's always distracting. Because when you're watching plays in church like I did, if you've grown up in church like I have, the children are always endearing. You can be transported and think of the beauty of the nativity when you're watching children do it because there's just sort of this, the, the, the sort of this innocence about the way that they go about it. But when you're watching adults do it, you're distracted by the styrofoam props. A lot of people are wearing bathrobes. Uh, there's always someone who's sort of the self-appointed makeup artist that does everybody's makeup and inexplicably everybody in the nativity looks like Beetlejuice. I remember the first time that uh, our organ player came out wearing a bathrobe and I'm like, Mrs. Pinkston, I'm never going to watch you play the organ the same again. It's distracting. But when you watch them come to this inn, um, there's two words in, uh, in uh, the Greek language, which this text was written in, that, that speak about an inn. Uh, if you were to go to a public inn down, down the street where the public can go and stay for a night, that kind of an inn is uh, called in the Greek a pendakian. But if you uh, look at this text, that's not the word that's used. A different word is used, which is kataluma. And the kataluma is a spare room in your house where guests would stay. That was called the inn. And in Palestinian homes, then and now, sort of a single room dwelling with a lower area where you would let the animals in at night so the predators didn't get them. And there were sort of hollows carved out of stone where they would put hay. And that was in the lower part of the house. What this text is telling us is that when there was no room for them in the inn, it meant that when the census was happening, the whole house was already full of relatives. And interestingly, um, nobody's willing to give up their room. Nobody's willing to give up their bed. No one's willing to give up their space. And so what this shows us is that Christ's suffering and rejection, uh, it began very early. If somebody, came, if, if somebody came and knocked at your door and it was a pregnant relative 
at Christmas time and your house was full of relatives, somebody would definitely be giving up their bed. Nobody in your house is going to say to your pregnant relative, you can have the garage and sleep on the concrete. It's just not going to happen. But what we see here is that our God was willing to be rejected and cast aside from the very beginning so that by grace we would be accepted and brought in. And so this announcement that we, that we see in this text, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, this announcement of glory and peace, peace on earth and on those with whom his favor rests, this announcement of glory and peace, it, it describes our need and it describes Christ's mission. Um, you know, here's how glory and peace describe our need. In the beginning, you remember the fall of man in Genesis 3, we rejected God as highest and we exalted ourselves as highest. We rejected the rule of God as highest and we embraced ourselves being our own God, defining good for ourselves and our own rule as highest. And that created a glory problem. And when we look out on the world that we live in today, which is beautiful and broken, all of the brokenness is a result of this glory problem. Because everyone who has exalted their way as highest, um, their needs as highest, uh, throughout the course of all human history, making the, exalt- the exaltation of anything other than the God of the Bible highest, has resulted in massive peace problems. Those have manifested in all sorts of uh, ways. Not only that, but if you don't glory in God as the highest, glory, by the way, meaning putting the weight of your worship, the weight of your trust. C.S. Lewis famously preached a a series of sermons called The Weight of Glory. If you don't put all of your, your weight and trust on God in the highest, whatever it is you've made highest, there's constant threats to that thing. So you, if you have a glory problem, you also have a peace problem. Whether it's your health, it's the highest, your education, your bank account, your toys, your family, your friends, your children, you can fill in the blank, you can pick your poison. Whatever it is you make highest, there are nonstop constant threats to that thing that you've made highest. So the glory problem leads to a peace problem. Now, this passage says, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. So what is this peace that's being offered? Well, in the Hebrew, all through the Hebrew scriptures, and some of you will be familiar with this, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. In the Greek uh, here, uh, it's translated arene. But in, in, in the Hebrew, um, the essence of peace means to bring wholeness to something, to bring completeness to something. So for example, uh, in Exodus uh, 22, if, you, if, you're, if your cattle went into somebody else's field and trampled their crops, the text says you're supposed to shalom your neighbor. Well, how do you shalom your neighbor? How do you give peace to your neighbor? You don't go over and be like, sorry, bro, loves and hugs, hugs and kisses. Lots of hugs and kisses. Peace, man. It's all peace and love. Peace and love. No, it means give them money, give them seeds, plant the crops, fix it, make it right. Restore what was broken. That's what shalom means. Restore the brokenness. When Solomon later in the Old Testament um, completed the temple, the text says that uh, Solomon shalomed the temple. How did he shalom the temple? It didn't mean he walked into the temple and he was like, hey, I'm just radiating some positive vibes. Peace and love to everybody. It meant he completed it. He meant all the bricks were put where the bricks were supposed to be. There was no gaps. Everything was finished. That's what shalom means. And so what is going on here with this announcement? Of Christ, of, of Christ's arrival. 
Christ's birth is announced as the arrival of healing, the arrival of shalom, the arrival of arene, the arrival of peace, the healing and the restoration of that which was broken. What was broken? What's this peace all about? It's very specific. It is the, the healing of the brokenness of the impossibly severed relationship between the creator and his creation. Jesus Christ himself, he is our peace. He is the arene. He is the shalom. He's the whole and perfect human with nothing missing, with no broken parts, with nothing that needs to be healed within himself. He's complete. When we say Jesus is our peace, what we're saying is he came as the whole and complete human that we were all made to be, but we fail to be. He's living the life that all of us are made to live, but we all fail to live. He lived the perfect love and mercy and justice that week after week, you and I fail to walk out with loving perfection. And he did it. And he came uh, to do what we could not do. This angelic announcement, it reminds us, of course, that, that our glory problem leads to the peace problem. And so what ought we to do is to glory in God in the highest. Return the glory where it belongs. The worship of Jesus. Return the glory where it, where it belongs. Now, not only does this glory and peace describe our need, it also describes Christ's mission. Look at how this... Um, Look at how this peace comes. Just follow the pattern. It's amazing. Susan touched on it when she was speaking with the kids earlier. The most important announcement of all time, containing the most important news of all time, comes to the most undeserving people of all time. Look at how this plays out. Who are the recipients of the greatest announcement in human history? <laughs> a handful of shepherds on a hillside who are not looking for Jesus. That's who gets the news. It's unbelievable. You look at it in verse eight. This is a quote from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 25b. This is a direct quote on how they spoke of shepherds at that time in Israel's history. They're dishonest, unclean outcasts and sinners. They're social rejects. And so just look at how this all plays out. The angels are doing their choir practice they're ready to do it. They, they pull the divide back. The realm of heaven and the realm of earth kiss as the angels are about to sing. And there's a handful of shepherds. And maybe there's one drunk guy who's like, wow, I love you angels. You guys are great. I love your dresses. Where did you guys get those? Can you just imagine it? This is the audience. This is who God chooses to give this unbelievable news to. The very first, just unbelievable. In verse 10, the, the first words out of the angels' mouths to the, this undeserving group of ragamuffins is fear not. And they don't deserve that. The, what they deserve is fear this. But they get fear not. It's absolutely incredible. It would have made more sense based on who these shepherds were that the heavens peeled back and what they got was, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. That would make sense. But fear not, this message of peace makes no sense. It's undeserved grace. 
And church, we are those shepherds. We are the ragamuffins on the hillside. We are the ones uh, who are unable to find peace and favor with God because of our sin. We are the ones who were unaware that we even needed Jesus. And yet God in his great grace moved in a thousand ways throughout the course of our lives so that here you and I are in church together, gathered, worshiping him because of what he did, because of how he moved. It's astounding. God moved towards us in grace before we ever knew that we even needed him. And that might describe some of you today who are on this call as you're seeking and uh, considering Christian faith. And I would invite you to return your glory to where it belongs. Glory to God in the highest. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And I will bring you to the waters of baptism so that like the rest of us, you can celebrate what you've received. And the pattern of the shepherds is the pattern of the gospel. God sought them in grace. In turn, they respond to that grace and then they go and they seek Jesus. And then they see Jesus and they see the gift of God's grace and they respond in worship. And then after they respond in worship, they go and they tell everybody what they found. It's the pattern of the Christian life. Verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom his favor rests. And not only is that line um, a prediction of Christ's birth, you know, it's also a prediction of his death. How is that line a prediction of his death? I'll, I'll tell you right now. It's a prediction of his death because how in the world can a holy God promise peace to undeserving sinners? He's coming to die for undeserving sinners. This announcement of peace is is only made because he's coming to die in order to, to win our peace. Notice who gets the peace. Peace on earth among those with whom his favor rests. So if we weren't born wanting God and we're sort of born into a condition of wanting to be our own gods, how in the world do any of us qualify for the peace and favor of God? How do any of us, how do how does anybody become one on whom his favor rests? Because they're the only ones getting the peace. Read the text. How do I get his, his favor to rest? We can't, but Christ can. There's nothing we can do. So Jesus Christ came to do what we could not do, which was to get God's favor to rest on us. And so united to Christ, God is well pleased with you. United to Christ, God's favor rests on you. And that is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And speaking of Charlie Brown, when the Charlie Brown Christmas special first dropped in 1965, uh, Charles Schultz did a really cool thing with his creation with Linus, one of the characters. Linus was one of the characters who was always seen with his security blanket. And he was never seen without a security blanket. But then in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, when Luke 2 is read, Linus, for the first and only time ever, drops a security blanket to read Luke 2. Church, Luke chapter 2 is an invitation for you and I to drop our security blankets. Drop whatever it is that we're hanging on to. Drop whatever it is that we've put our glory in, in the highest, and return it to where it belongs. And to trust in Christ alone. And so, this incarnation of Jesus Christ, it, God come in human flesh, it presents the fullness of God in the fullness of man. 
And it proclaims the gospel, which is the fullness of God, you know, given to man. And so as we look at um, how this text closes out, we see that in uh, the shepherds were given this sign. You're going to find this babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, uh, lying in a manger. And when the shepherds looked at the Christ child, they saw the gospel. They were looking right at it. The image of the innocent Christ child wrapped in strips of linen, laying on a stone manger. And this is a foreshadow, a foreshadowing of the innocent Christ wrapped in grave clothes, strips of linen, laying on the stone of a tomb. And it is a picture of the gift of God's grace being extended to those of us who don't deserve it, which is all of us. God's gift of grace that was wrapped in these swaddling cloths at first Christmas morning was unwrapped in the grave clothes of the empty tomb. And so church, we celebrate this Christmas together. Peace was announced. Angels sang. Shepherds were blown away. May we be like those shepherds and may the goodness of God's grace blow us away. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you there is born this day in the city of David, Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray.